0: And so I think that there's been a consolidation uh, around kind of a hawkish border and migrant policy in this country that, that is becoming increasingly a consensus of both parties. And I think that that's dangerous.
1: You've always taken such a charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Are you an inventor or do you know an inventor? Welcome to The Border Chronicle. I'm Melissa Del Bosque, co-founder, along with Todd Miller, of the weekly newsletter and podcast about the US-Mexico border from a border perspective. You can read and subscribe to our work at theborderchronicle.com. Today, I'm speaking with A.J. Bauer, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Journalism and Creative Media at the University of Alabama. He holds a PhD in American Studies from New York University and is co-editor of News on the Right, Studying Conservative News Cultures by Oxford University Press. In addition to academic venues, he's also written for The Texas Observer, The Guardian, TV Guide, Political Magazine, and Bloomberg. And he's currently writing a book about the history of conservative press criticism in the United States called Making the Liberal Media. And I've been wanting to have AJ on the podcast because he studies conservative media. And I've been covering the border for at least two decades now. And what I've really begun to notice, well, especially since the Trump era, was how big the right-wing media ecosystem was growing and really defining the narrative about the U.S.-Mexico border and about migration and asylum. The frame that is commonly used by right-wing media and what I hear a lot of is uh, and from elected officials is this invasion threat narrative, which I've written quite a bit about in the Border Chronicle. And, and you know, they use terms like people, are the people that are crossing are military age men. They're bringing fentanyl to kill Americans and they're criminals and invaders, which of course we heard a lot of that rhetoric um, repeated by Donald Trump when he was president. Um and having you know interviewed hundreds of asylum seekers and immigrant and migrants over the years, m- you know, all the people I have spoken with are either fleeing persecution and violence in their countries, or they're seeking jobs and better economic um, uh, futures here in the United States. And and usually, really, it's a combination of both those things. There are many complex reasons for why people come. Um, in fact, I was just speaking with some uh, African men at the border wall last week, who were hoping to find work to feed their families back home, and some were escaping political conflicts and 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 threats. Um, but we almost never hear from actual people crossing in in the media anymore, really, and definitely not in the right wing media, which would give people, I think, a more nuanced understanding of what's happening at the border right now, and. So I'm really glad to have you here today, AJ. Uh, Thank you so much for for coming on the Border Chronicle podcast.
0: Of course, yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, and so first I wanted to ask if you could talk about what you're seeing with the growth of right-wing media, and how did it come to have such an outsized influence on mainstream press coverage and even Democratic Party rhetoric, and especially, I think, regarding the border and migration issues. How has that evolved from what you've seen?
0: Yeah, thanks. So um, the history of right-wing conservative media in the U.S. dates back um, almost 100 years, about 80 years at this point, um, to the late 1940s. And uh, throughout most of that time period, uh, it wasn't terribly influential. Uh, It was often somewhat stigmatized um, and marginal. Uh, So you would have, you know, Right wing radio broadcasters like Carl McIntyre or Fulton Lewis Jr., the newscaster, uh, who would give kind of right wing or right anti communist framings for the news of the day. Um, a lot of these folks, uh, like McIntyre, were religious, so they would mix kind of religious programming uh, along with uh, right wing anti communist conspiracies. Um, It wasn't really until I would say the 1980s that you start to see kind of an increase of what I like to call um, commercially viable conservative media. Um, So before the 1980s, most of uh, conservative right-wing media was not profitable um, and had relatively limited audiences. Um, It was increasingly influential uh, because, uh, let's say, the National Review, which William F. Buckley founded in 1955, um, kind of chattering class elites in Washington, D.C. and New York uh, would read that and and consider it the kind of uh, you know uh, reasonable or respectful opposition uh, to the kind of liberal consensus of the mid twentieth century. Um, it wasn't really until the Reagan administration that you start to see um, the beginnings of commercially viable and kind of mass right wing media. The first of those is obviously, or perhaps not obviously, uh, Rush Limbaugh. Right. So in uh, throughout most of the mid twentieth century, uh, we had a policy in this country called uh, the Fairness Doctrine. Um, this was an FCC policy that said that all uh, radio and television broadcasts in the U.S. Um, had to uh, both air issues of controversy uh, in their news coverage uh, and that they needed to do so in a balanced way. Um, so the idea of, you know, a, a right wing talk radio where you just have one conservative talking for three hours a day. Right. Or a whole channel worth of uh, conservative uh, talk radio, as we have often this these days. Um, that was impossible. Um, if you did that uh, which Carl McIntyre who I mentioned did uh, in the in the 1960s, uh, the FCC could revoke your license. And so what happened in 1987 is that Ronald Reagan uh, and his FCC chairman, um, Mark Fowler um, overturned the fairness Doctrine basically decided uh, it was you know part of a bigger deregulatory trend for the Reagan administration uh, and got rid of it And so the next year, in 1988, you see Rush Limbaugh going national, uh, syndicating uh, his uh, uh, right-wing talk radio format. Um, And then from there, by the early 90s, you know, that was profitable. It established that there was a mass market uh, for conservative uh, uh, content, uh, particularly if it was kind of uh, mixed with humor and kind of outrage and those sorts of things. Um, and then from there, uh, Fox News is created in 1996. It kind of takes that model uh, and using the kind of um, uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch's kind of deep pockets um, and economies of scale, they were able to, you know, create Fox News as a, as a viable cable network. And so I think what we're seeing uh, in the last, say, 10 to 20 years uh, is a really rapid proliferation of uh, right-wing media, um, some of which is smaller scale uh, digital outlets that might be backed still by philanthropists, kind of the way that right-wing media used to be in the before times. Um, but nowadays you've got, you know, massively uh, um, uh, profitable right-wing media outlets like Fox News, you have uh, outlets like Newsmax and whatnot, which just signed um, a new contract with all five cable carriers to be carried um, or to continue being carried. So right now you've got um different from the mid 20th century, or even say 20 years ago, not only uh, a lot of right wing media, increasingly commercially viable right wing media with mass audiences.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I mean, because what you're saying really is conservative uh, media is, is, is not new, but it's increasingly like rapidly evolving. I mean, there's there's been a lot of layoffs in traditional legacy media outlets in the last several years and and really just in 2023 I think there were more media layoffs than there were in 2021 and 2022 combined and and you know these right. are uh, layoffs in places like you know Washington Post LA Times uh right. local local outlets have just Folded, you know, or they're down to like one or two two people. But at this, on the other end of the spectrum, right, you see the right wing media outlets that seem to really be uh, flourishing and uh, do seem to have money. Has the Trump and the and the MAGA movement uh, how has that changed conservative media? And can we even call it conservative anymore? Because it's really pretty radical, isn't it? <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, conservatism has always been radical. I think it's worth noting that um, there was a period in the kind of mid twentieth century where William F. Buckley and uh, kind of cadre of activists around him uh, tried to carve out kind of a respectable or responsible conservatism that wasn't uh, kind of radical. Um, but I, I think that was always a little bit of uh, lipstick on a pig, right? Um, the the conservative movement in this country since the post throughout the post war era and arguably even before then, uh, you know. Engage in a lot of pretty extreme uh far right, you know, uh, you know, sidling up to fascism uh with the uh, uh kind of America first movement, right? Um, you know, I don't think that it makes I think that it's common to distinguish between a mainstream and a uh like far or radical right. Um, but I think that the the historians are increasingly noticing that throughout history, those two segments of the conservative movement have been in in conversation. And so when I'm using the term conservative uh, in this conversation, I mean right wing and and I use those somewhat interchangeably um, because I think that those movements are relatively uh, interchangeable at this point, or at least there's increasing collaboration. And I think that one thing that you're seeing recently, and and you mentioned kind of the MAGA media, uh, other than like outlets like the the um the bulwark, right? Which is kind of like a, a remnant of the weekly standard, um, which is uh kind of a never Trump or like a, an anti-Trump kind of conservative publication. I would say that most conservative or right-wing media in the US is MAGA media at this point. Um, you you don't technically or typically see um uh clear uh, ideological, sub-ideological delineations within right-wing media. Um, So I think that they are all MAGA in the sense that they're all like basically supporting Trump uh, because Trump is, you know, effectively and practically speaking, the head of the Republican Party and the head of the conservative movement at the moment. Um, I don't think that that's forever. I think when he inevitably dies um, and then there's infighting, then that's going to look very different. Um, So I don't want to make it seem like uh, MAGA media is like, MAGA till they die forever, right? It's It depends on the kind of political circumstances. And they're just, you know, continuing to, to uh, ride Donald Trump's coattails in that regard. Um, but speaking to, to border issues, um, you know, Trump's 2016 run really changed the game uh, regarding border rhetoric. Um, if you recall, there were efforts under both the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administrations to try to pass what they were calling them like comprehensive immigration reforms, right? And all of those attempts look downright leftist <laughs> compared to where the discourse is at today. Um, don't get me wrong, like those were flawed plans and like had lots of problems. I wouldn't consider them leftist in the least bit. Um, but I say that just to say how far to the right we've come um, in, in the discourse and in terms of policy. Um, when you've got, you know, Joe Biden effectively undercutting the Democratic Party uh, sentiments from uh, in negotiations with the Republicans trying to get a border deal and uh, along with the spending deal, like, uh, you effectively have the, dem- the Democratic Party uh, doing what the Republican Party was doing 15, 10 years ago, right? Um, and so I think that there's been a consolidation uh, around kind of a hawkish border in migrant policy in this country that that is becoming increasingly a consensus of both parties. And I think that that's dangerous.
1: Yeah, and, and I don't know if you've looked... Um at other parts of the world, right? Because this is also happening in Europe and other places where we're seeing this very anti-immigrant authoritarian messaging, which is, you know, hand in hand with the authoritarian uh, governments taking over various countries, you know, like Hungary and Viktor Orban, for example. I mean, what where, where does this type of rhetoric lead to? What can it lead to? And then when, you know, when are we just stepping into, like, just out and out fascism.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that this kind of xenophobic, like, anti-immigrant rhetoric has been uh, a real kindling for the rise of kind of far-right politics across the globe. Um, You see this, uh, you know, I was in Germany over the summer talking with some scholars there, and there's, you know, the AFD... Uh, alternative for Deutschland, right, Uh, which is the far right party in that country, they're polling, you know, very high, uh, relatively to where they've pulled in the past. Now, you know, that's a multi party state. um, So it's, you know, they're not pulling at 50% or whatever, but they're, they're pulling high enough that they might actually get like some significant influence in the parliament, right. And so um, I think that it isn't just uh, that we've seen, uh, you know, people like Orban or whatever, taking over, um, uh, based upon anti-immigrant rhetoric you're also seeing i think what's going to be an increase of of those sorts of politicians abroad uh in the years to come um but i think that um one of the things that scares me the most and i mean i can't speak to like you know i'm a historian i'm not a good at predicting the future um but i think that one thing that's super disconcerting about the rise of xenophobic rhetoric and the fueling of the far right at this particular historical moment um, is that we're at a pretty crucial moment with regards to climate change, uh, where we're starting to see the real effects in terms of extreme weather. Uh, I think last year or the last two years, maybe both were the hottest years ever. yeah, the, the, the climate is changing in ways that are going to result in mass migration as people, uh, you know, areas become uninhabitable, um, uh, you know, different economies collapse uh, based upon, you know, different kinds of crops no longer being sustainable in certain areas, uh, floods, droughts, all you name it. Right. Um, we're entering a time period in human history where migration is going to be necessary and inevitable. Right. And so the fact that you see uh, right wing politicians and increasingly even liberal uh, parties like the Democratic Party in the U.S. embracing a kind of uh, xenophobia, uh, hard border, hawkish border policies, this is exactly the moment where we need to be thinking more creatively um, and less restrictively around border policies, and and yet we're going the opposite direction. And so, um, I, you know, I'm not terribly optimistic. I think you could even call me pessimistic about where, where this ends up. Um, in terms of how those governments or how those policies will be structured, I don't know what kind of label we'll want to associate with it, but I get, definitely can say that it's going to involve the dehumanization of migrant peoples uh, in multiple countries um, and in ways that are designed to basically protect um, folks who happen to live uh, in the global North or in the in the West uh, against uh changing uh demography right uh what their cultures look like um and I think it's worth speaking to the kind of like uh the way that um uh, the concern with migration is a racist concern. Um, and I think that often mainstream media avoids that kind of language, um, uh, even something like the New York Times will talk about the border crisis, right? Um, that is racist language. It, it is implying that there are there is a threat uh, because these people who, honestly, in the U.S. context, many of them already share a continent with us, right? They're just moving across an imaginary line. Um, and so... I think that the concern about demographic shifts and whatnot is is just, you know, polite ways of making old racist claims.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly um, disturbing that and a big concern of ours at the Border Chronicle and something that we write about quite a bit with with climate change and migration, which is going to be is, you know, the issue of the century. Right. We should be as a country taking preventative measures, like basically, you know, figuring our shit out. How are we going to address this? You know, right. where do we stand as a country? What are our policies regarding people from outside the U.S. who want to seek protection here? You know, we're, we're, we we're have already had, you know, uh, internal migration. I mean, you're from Texas. I lived in Texas many years, and I remember after Katrina, many people moving from Louisiana to Texas and, you know, they didn't go back. Um,
0: Yeah, there's a significant like New Orleanian diaspora in Houston, for example.
1: Yeah, exactly, because of climate change and so we all see this coming and and it's incredibly sad that the only response is, you know, just how high can we build the wall? How many weapons can we put on, you know, our borders? And we already know that none of this works anyway. I mean, all it does is ratchet up the misery and, and deaths, but it's not gonna prevent people from moving in in any shape, sense or form.
0: Right, and, and the thing that really strikes me, and you know, so I split my time between Tuscaloosa, Alabama and Brooklyn, New York. Um, one thing that I find really striking is What you've got going on now in cities like New York and Chicago is uh, effectively a media stunt, right, uh, by governors like Abbott and DeSantis to basically uh, concentrate uh, migrants who've come across the border uh, in places uh, that are, quote unquote, liberal democratic spaces, right, um, in order to uh, increase that crisis rhetoric among liberal media and uh, mainstream media in those states. Um, In, you know, my Second home state of New York, um, you've got Governor Hochul uh, and Mayor Adams, uh, both Democrats, who ran staunch xenophobic, right anti migrant campaigns uh, when they they won this most recent election cycle. Um, so the Democratic Party in the state of New York is saying the same kinds of rhetoric uh, that that um, Abbott is to some degree. And so I think that the thing that surprises me is, um, you know, especially living in Tuscaloosa, America is vast. There are many small towns that need employees for small businesses. There are ghost towns in West Texas that are like five people. Right. We do not lack for space or housing. Right. The problem is, is you have uh, these Republican governors sending migrants to states that are already in the face in uh, facing housing crises. There's already a housing crisis in, in New York. Uh, already. Right. Um, and so then if you add thousands of other people, of course, you're going to have a hard time finding a place for them to live. Right now, if you uh, if Joe Biden and the Biden administration wanted to manage the dis- the the dissemination of migrants around the country in a, in a way that got migrants to places that needed uh, needed folks to work or had Rooms for them to stay at, right? That would avoid the crisis narrative. And why the Biden administration isn't doing this, I don't understand, right? Um, it's basically acceding to the right-wing media uh, spectacle that that these Republican politicians are doing and claiming that the crisis is real when really it's just a media spectacle that's being uh, driven by the Republican Party and Republican politics.
1: Yeah, and this is what blows my mind: is that you know the Democrats don't seem to have any type of effective like. Uh, platform of policies or narrative to to counter that narrative, you know, the right wing threat narrative and chaos narrative. Um, interestingly, I you know when I was down at the border wall last week speaking to these uh, gentlemen from Africa who had you know just just come across and were getting picked up by border patrol, uh, mm-hmm. I stayed in touch with one of them because I wanted to know understand what the process was like for them. And if you and what he told me is that if you don't have an address to go to you, you know, you don't have a relative in the United States, then they send you to New York. That's what the Border Patrol agent told him. He said, well, you're going to New York. I'm putting it on your your notice to appear form. And then once once that's in your paperwork, that's where you have to go. So he really had no choice but to go to New York. Um, Right. Which is that thing. Right. And well, and in speaking about the dissemination, you know, like, if this was actually done in a, in a logical way, you know, CBP would be saying, okay, New York's got, a, you know, way too many people. So let's send them to Portland, Oregon, or let's send them somewhere else, right, where they have the capacity to take this person. But it does seem like it's so broken or set up in such a way to create this Chaotic response to something that, you know, the richest country in the world should be able to handle at this point.
0: The the richest country with also like very small population density, actually, (laughs) like, especially if you get outside of major cities where, again, some of them are having like San Francisco and New York are having housing crises, but there are many. Uh, small towns and cities, uh, Rust Belt cities that are have more housing stock than they need. Right. This is why all the hipsters in Brooklyn go to Philly. Right. Housing stock is cheaper there. Right. Um, but again, I, I don't. You know, as I'm not privy to conversations in the Democratic Party, but I don't understand why they're letting themselves be played by this. Honestly.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's sad. You know, this this gentleman I was speaking to from from Africa is an IT specialist. I mean, he he. His mother had a stroke, you know, he's got three daughters, he's, uh, you know, had an economic crisis, is hoping to get work and some political problems back home. But I mean, this guy had a LinkedIn page, he was like, ready to work, you know, Um, of course. Yeah, I mean, a very, you know, I would say he was probably middle class and, you know, really focused and, you know, a trained individual who could really do something productive Um, But this
0: is the thing that a lot of the like um, media coverage of migration in the US historically right has tended to uh, incorporate a lens of American exceptionalism right where it says well america is the best place to be this is in scare quotes um america is the best place to be everybody in the world wants to be a us citizen right um no wonder everybody's flooding over the borders trying to get here right we need to do something to keep them out realistically though most people like where they live right <laughs> they they live with their families they've been there for generations like people are not inclined to migrate unless there's some serious reason to, right? Economic conditions, political rep- uh, repression, uh, climate, right? Um, the fact that people are coming to the US speaks to like the desperation of situations in a variety of different country contexts, not necessarily to like the greatness of America, right? And so I think that the because the Republican Party has been so, at least since 9-11, right? Has been so... Um, you know, wrapping itself around the flag, the Democratic Party feels uncomfortable, right? Um, talking or using rhetoric that might indicate it's like, hey, look, actually, a lot of these people probably want to go back to where they're from eventually, right? Like, Or or they want to move here temporarily and send remissions um, back home uh, to folks, right? Um, it seems like there's not really much room within media coverage to talk about the realistics and the logistics of migration. Um, it's always folded back into this kind of um, of course, they want to come to America. America's the best, but we don't have room, right?
1: Yeah, I feel like anybody who you know arrives at the border is characterized either as a, a victim or an invader. They right. they're sort of robbed of their humanity and their agency, which starves us of information here in the U.S. as to what we're actually missing. By not being able to incorporate the talents of, of these folks who are, you know, literally risking their lives to come and work here, you know, um, and do Absolutely. want do want to go back to their countries. But I mean, the reality is if you're from Africa and you know you're middle class or lower middle class, you're never gonna get a visa. You know, mm-hmm. it's gonna be very hard to ever get a work visa here in the US. Mm-hmm. And and so people are pushed you know, under these circumstances to come in these irregular ways. Um, and so it's just, we have this very antiquated, you know, immigration system and, and also in the way that we just look at labor in general.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, because that's the the other narrative, right, is the, um, and this was honestly part of the narrative that was supporting the Bush administration's policy around migration or the desire for some kind of guest worker. Uh, Program, right, is well, we've got some work that Americans won't do, right? Um, And even to this day, like, uh, especially post pandemic, every time I talk with any, you know, conservative or borderline conservative family members, it's always the claim is, well, nobody wants to work anymore, right? And of course, the the real thing there is that nobody wants to work for you know minimum wage anymore because minimum wage isn't a living wage, right? That you need to pay your workers more. Um, and so, what those business people want is folks to come, right? Uh, particularly folks who don't have a lot of power are going to need to work under the table. They can pay them less as a result, um, so that they can do service work. Not that Americans don't want to do or are unwilling to do, but uh, work that is being paid so little that that folks are just not willing to do it, right? Um, and so there are even economic advantages, right, from like a right wing perspective, business perspective, right, um, for allowing uh, these migrants to come and to work sub minimum wage. Right. Um, again, I don't support that at all, but it's, it's surprising to me that even that uh, historical conservative talking point has basically gone by the wayside. Right. It's now totally militant. And I think that's something that the the Trump kind of build the wall uh, and and extreme xenophobic discourse that Trump uh, put when he was running for president in 16 and throughout his administration, uh, I feel like it's kind of captured uh, the the imagination of both parties and the media.
1: Yeah. And I mean, having covered this issue for so long, and this is why I'm so fascinated by the narrative, right, and how it gets made and how it gets repeated and how it ends up actually making um, political um policies for us, it is, you, you know, the, the narrative over the years is really not changed. It's like we, as a country, we've not gotten any, you know, wiser about how we think about this, uh, or nuanced, or, you know, embrace the complexity of it, so that we could really do some meaningful, uh, you know, policy changes. And as you said, now, it's just become completely militant. And it's, all invasion narrative, all threat narrative. And so I wanna, I, I I wanted to mention this to you that I, you know, I just wrote this recent article for the Border Chronicle where I coined this new term, the MAGA media militia, right? Because what I'm right. seeing now is this merging of the militias and the media outlets, which is really interesting. You know, you're like an armed correspondent basically. And and uh, you know, I wrote about this Newsmax correspondent, Jason Jones, and he's a former uh, employee of the Texas Department of Public Safety. You know, and he's now Newsmax correspondent. Of course, I've said that. And uh, you know, he rolled into this migrant camp near the border wall in Arizona about a week ago, surrounded by armed masked men, to do his, you know, his coverage, to do his interviews for for his own content. And for Newsmax, which is just wild to me, you know, Uh, it's a very odd way of doing journalism. Um, It actually really isn't journalism, it's propaganda, but he calls himself a correspondent. And he's regularly interviewed on various outlets, and he puts out his content on Newsmax. And, and it definitely influences how people in the rest of the country think about the border. So I mean, here we are now at this point where we've got like, you know, armed Correspondence basically.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I was I read that piece and I was, you know, quite frankly, pretty stunned. Um, you know, I I've I've been following like right-wing media formations for quite a while. And um, there are some parallels historically, but it seems like it's merging multiple parallel uh multiple historical things, which is weird. Um, so some parallels that I saw there is um uh there's are some parallels with right anti communist researchers in the 1940s. So Jones, as you mentioned, was like a former captain of the Texas Department of Public Safety. Um, a lot of anti uh, communist right wingers uh, researchers and media personalities in the 40s and 50s were former FBI agents. Um, so Dan Smoot fellow Texan uh, was a former FBI agent who went to go work for H.L. Hunt uh, for Facts Forum and was on radio and television throughout the 1950s and 60s, uh, promoting kind of Um, anti-communism. Most of those uh, who were these uh, former FBI agents who went into right-wing media stuff um, took the form of kind of private investigators or security experts. Um, So one firm uh, that actually gathered a whole lot of intel on liberals and leftists uh, in the 1950s, uh, basically a part of the kind of Red Scare, McCarthy era. Um, was a firm called Wackenhut Wackenhut Corporation, sorry. Um, And so Wackenhut, right, has since grown into an international security company called G4S Secure Solutions, uh, whose clients include U.S. Customs and Border Security, right, Uh, or protection. Um, So I think that there's always been this kind of uh, peculiar and interesting partnership between um, uh, policing apparatuses, both in this case state level or federal, um, and right wing movement infrastructure, um, particularly in terms of information gathering uh, and media uh, promotion. Um, That's always been kind of a a hand in glove kind of thing. Um, What's curious or interesting to me about the Jones situation though, is um, why he is kind of cosplaying as a journalist here, right? Um, what does it mean to show up with masked men with guns uh, and then try to interview somebody, right? you're Like you're skewing your interview if you're waving a gun in their face too, right? And so I think that this speaks somewhat to um, a longer standing issue uh, within the modern conservative movement in the US, which is that from very early on, um, conservatives were told that their kind of vision of the world, their worldview, right? was inconsistent with the kind of basic facts and evidence of the kind of like uh, Cold War Keynesian liberal consensus, right? The way they thought about the economy didn't fit within economists' uh, explanations, right? Their way, their their kind of antiquated and racist way of thinking about the world was like, not sufficient to the kind of like increasing Cold War, uh, anti Jim Crow segregation policy of the, the Johnson Democratic Party, right? Um, uh, Kennedy into Johnson Democratic Party. And so because from the very beginning, conservatives were often criticized as not only being wrong, but also like having you know, the facts not being on their side. Um, there's been a concern from very early in conservative media activism with establishing themselves as being the ones who provide the facts. So I mentioned a minute ago, Dan Smoot, um, HL Hunt, who was a Texas oil man, founded Facts Forum in 1951. It lasted until 57. Um, and this was a radio and television program, ultimately uh, that was a, again called Facts Forum um, that, bound, that that debated both sides of the issues of the day in a way that depicted conservative arguments as the more factual ones, right? The more the more true ones. And so that concern with facticity, with truth, has been a kind of a persistent theme uh, throughout the modern conservative movement. And so part of the reason why I think Jones is showing up with a microphone, right? And not just a gun, right? Because there are pre- precursors to the gun thing too. You can think back to the uh, the Minuteman project in their early aughts, right? Where you would have militiamen, uh, white militiamen who would go to the US border and basically hunt immigrants, right? Um, so, He's doing a little bit of that, but instead of like hunting and and gathering up the immigrants, interviewing them, right? He's trying to contribute to this idea that that conservatives are interested in reality and facts, right? Which again, is a convenient cover when they're they're kind of peppering that with false misinformation and and kind of their own worldview. Um, So I think it's kind of a legitimate legitimation strategy, right? Is that he's not merely a militiaman; He's not merely just uh, talking about uh, you know this kind of imaginary crisis at the border. He's going and showing the quote-unquote facts.
1: Right, right, and and uh, you know I reached out to him um, just to you know speak with him and interview him and and get him to comment on, on the piece. But I didn't I didn't hear back from him. But uh, mm-hmm. you know I want to say I don't think I I couldn't see that he was armed in the video. I mean the men around him clearly were, and I had run into those same men you know a couple of days earlier at the same same camp uh but at one point in his uh in the content he put out on newsmax there's one of one of the armed guys is there in in the footage you know and in normal journalism it would be like you know wait who's the who's the masked armed guy you know (laughs) maybe you should like talk about that a little bit because it's in your frame and it's in your piece so what 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 is up with that you know
0: um, yeah. I mean, you know, a stat that I would like to get is, is like, what percentage of migrants crossing the border have firearms?
1: Right. I bet it's really <laughs> low,
0: right? It's probably extremely low. Yeah. Um. And so why do you need heavily armed guards to interview folks who've been like probably walking for days on end, uh, who are probably hungry and thirsty and probably don't have any weapons, let alone any incentive to use weapons, right?
1: Yeah. An interesting frame that they're using, you know, that Jane Jones is using and others is that humanitarian aid volunteers are aiding and betting cartels. You know, they're helping these terrorists. And and it, it really incites violence. And it really puts a target on the backs of these volunteers, most of whom are like retired school teachers. I mean, a lot right. of these folks are in their 70s, some are even in their 80s. I mean, these are I've interviewed a lot of these people and, you know, they're Americans, you know, retired and are just trying, you know, they're church groups and they're just trying to reduce some of the misery and help these folks with like some water or, you know, a burrito or something while they wait to get picked up by border patrol, which can take sometimes hours or days.
0: Right. And I mean, I think this also speaks to, I mean, like you mentioned a little while ago, Um, Journalism is in crisis, like a real crisis, and has been for more than 20 years at this point, but um, there just aren't as many reporters uh, that are working for major publications or even local publications anymore. And so if, you know, in your own experience, like going to the border, like how often do you see national media reporters going down there and actually interviewing migrants? Um, It doesn't seem like that happens very often, yet I, I, I see every once in a while pretty often like, Fox News sending cameras down there to do these kind of stunts, or, or, or in this case, with the uh, this Jones character, right? Um, and so if you've got right-wing media play acting as journalists going down and covering the border in a way that mainstream journalists, either because they don't have the money or resources, uh, they're basically just like interviewing the leaders of the uh, Customs and Border Patrol, right? Um, they're not going down there and interviewing all of these folks, Um, even in the coverage uh, in like the New York Times. um, I was reading earlier this week, um, what's his name? Daniel, um, not Daniel, David Leonhart had a piece that says the Democrats are out of step when public opinion when it comes to immigration. Um, The Times is, is running things like that, right? They've got another piece today, how Biden's immigration fight threatens his biggest foreign policy win, right? They're focused on those kind of bigger questions. But I don't see those reporters in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, immigri- like interviewing migrants who are uh, housed in hotels there, right? And asking them what they're doing there. Part of that is because they don't have the language skills. right? In some instances, the reporters don't. Um, but I don't understand why Um, both reporters and the Democratic Party aren't doing more to uh, give us this kind of rich context that, you know, frankly, uh, Border Chronicle and your reporting is doing, right? Um, Letting us know, like, what are these people's goals and motivations? Like, what do they need, right? How can we help them Um, instead of treating it like it's, you know, part of the next uh, election cycle or, uh, you know, horse race politics?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's always been incredibly difficult to get uh, New York-based media, which is, you know, all of our like national papers of record, the New York Times, Republica, uh, you know, Washington Post in Washington, of course, but to get them interested in the border has always been very difficult or interested in Mexico or Latin America for that matter. I mean, that's always been very apparent to me, you know, and I started writing about the Texas Mexico border in 1998 and it's, it's just always been that way. And then when Trump was in office you know, there was suddenly a lot of attention on the border and, you know, New York Times, all of these outlets were interested and there was funding, you know, to cover family separation or these various issues that were happening during the Trump era. But once Trump was gone, it was like they all left, you know, right. and, and Fox News showed up, you know, and they've got their crews down there on the border 24-7. And since, you know, January, 2020, when you know Biden took office, they've got hashtag Biden border crisis. I mean, they've right. been nonstop reporting on the border for the last you know three three years. Um, right. Along with the entire right wing ecosystem, so they completely own the narrative now on the border, and you know to the point where like I was at my do- at a doctor's appointment yesterday. And I always hate this because they go, oh, you know, the nurse said, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a writer. Well, what do you write about? And it's like, okay, here we go. I write (laughs) about the border and immigration. Oh, yeah, I am just so scared. I'm terrified about those people coming across all those military age men, you know, and there and here she goes, you know, and it's like, oh, God, where do I start, you know? And I I told her, look, you know, I was just down there speaking with these folks and, you know, I met a very nice gentleman with a family, of three girls, and he's looking for work, you know, his mother had a stroke and, you know, a lot of these folks are just looking for work or, or protection, you know, from threats to their lives or political issues. Um, but just that framing is, uh, so pervasive now and it just, you know, completely shapes the way people think about the border at this point.
0: Right, I mean, like both in 2018, the mid, in the run-up to the midterms and in 2020, there was a quote unquote migrant caravan, right? Yeah. These caravans always seem to materialize around elections and they always dissipate and just disappear effectively, right? Um, I remember I saw something a few weeks ago, I feel like, about another quote unquote migrant caravan and I think I saw it in the times. Like, and again, I'm a little bit skewed cause I, you know, since I'm partly based in New York, I, I read the times as like one of my, my major news sources. And it it's just flabbergasting to me as somebody who studies right-wing media, right? I, my, my work is to consume right-wing media. Like my off time, I wanna consume non-right-wing media, right? And actually like see what other narratives there are in the world. And on this issue, I don't see much difference, honestly.
1: No, there's there's no difference, you know, and, and when I am down there now, there's there's nobody there, but there's, you know, the right wing guys are there, the, you know, the MAGA media militia is there, the armed, armed correspondents um, are there, but, you know, largely that's it. I mean, now that we're in election season, we're going to see the political reporters who will, right. you know, do some interviews at the border, but it'll be know from a political national political perspective like from the horse horse race variety of you know who's 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 got the dominant narrative who doesn't you know who's who's losing on immigration who's winning basically right um this is
0: where it gets complicated too because like part of that horse race like i was pointing out that david leonhardt piece from earlier in the week they're saying that the democrats are out of step with public opinion Um, But then they're saying that public opinion is right wing, effectively, that that the public opinion is frightened of migrants and like wants, you know, militant border policies. Um, But, you know, who else fears migrants and wants militant border policies? Uh, Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, who's a Democrat, and Eric Adams, who is the Democratic mayor of New York. Right. Um, The Democrats aren't out of step, you know. I would I would dispute that public opinion in this instance is indeed right wing. I think that that is more of a manifestation of the you know media coverage and the the um liberal and mainstream media's kind of adoption of right-wing frames around the border. I think that's shaping public opinion. Um, But even if we're saying that that is like some natural public opinion, the Democrats are absolutely pandering to that, right? There is a very small number of Democrats who are actually trying to have more nuanced takes and policy perspectives Uh, about border and migrant issues. Right. Um, But those are not the Democrats that, uh, you know, are getting written up in The New York Times. Right. Um, Or those are rather they're being amplified as though they, you know, control the Democratic Party message when really the Democratic Party elected leaders like Biden and Hochul and and Adams are all kind of in lockstep with some kind of right wing policy formations around this.
1: Yeah, it's it's incredibly disappointing. And, you know, we 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 report from the perspective of border communities, you know, speaking to people right. who actually live on the border. And so many of them ask me, like, how can we turn this narrative around? You know, this is not our reality. We live here. You know, we're not under invasion. We're not afraid, you know. But right. why is everybody characterizing our communities as this fearful, crime-filled place under invasion when they're like, We don't you know, that's not our reality, but it doesn't seem to ever pierce this national debate or narrative that is constantly portraying the border as, you know, chaotic and under threat and being invaded.
0: Right. Which it's also ironic because, you know. New York City, where the New York Times and, like you said, most national media, you know, NBC, CBS, ABC, etc., are based, um, it's also a border community, right? Um, historically, like migrants come in through Ellis Island, and then they're in New York, and, or even after post Ellis Island phase, right? New York is one of the most diverse uh, populations in the country. Uh, there are people from like almost every single language and place on earth living there in small community, right? Um, if any city right can can handle uh, kind of influx of new folks from different places with different languages, like it's a place like New York, right? Um, and yet they're still going like outside the Roosevelt Hotel and the fact that there's uh, people, uh, migrants kind of waiting to be able to place into shelter and whatnot. There's more coverage of that, which looks chaotic, right? Because of the mismanagement of it, than there is of like mutual aid efforts uh, among my community members in Brooklyn who are going in, for example, uh, raising gathering winter coats uh, to, to give uh, to migrants uh, who are being uh, held at uh, Floyd Bennett Field which is uh, pretty far removed uh, from city center and pretty difficult for migrants to let's say get to schools or, or other kinds of appointments they need to get to. Need to, get to. Um, but there's an influx of community grassroots uh, support for migrants, right? That's not really being reported on, though. Just like the way that the I'm sure there's various forms of mutual aid and support within border communities uh, on the southern border, uh, where people are helping each other. Right. Um, the fact that the kind of helping our neighbors narrative gets completely left out of national discourse skews that discourse further to the right.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly sad because border communities for years and years have have come together and. You know, provided food and clothing, and and really dealt with these emergency situations largely on their own, and right. and then to see the rhetoric, you know, from the right wing move even further to the right to now where there's a target on their backs for basically being out there preventing people from dying. You know, because I mean, when you're faced with it, face to face with you know children uh families who are in the, sitting in the snow with no food or water no shelter and they may be there for a day or two until border patrol responds i mean what do, what do you do do you let them die obviously no you know so so people rally and they and you know they come together just like they're doing in new york or chicago or other cities and i i just see this Advancement towards putting a target on their backs and and really like directing violence, inciting violence towards, you know, volunteer, uh, humanitarians is just a horrible turn, you know, in our society.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that one reason, getting back to this question of like why mainstream, um, media outlets have adopted this right wing frame. Um, speaks to the problem of both major political parties uh, being unwilling to, uh, I mean, in the case of the Republican Party, like they're in favor of a militarized border, Um, the Democratic Party is unwilling to, you know, be an advocate, right, for a different vision of how we as a country ought to treat migrants, right? Um, which could be more welcoming, right? Biden could go to the border, right? And he could go have conversations with migrants and or, or with border communities and say, how can I help, right? What resources do you need to provide for these folks, right? That's not what he's doing, right? That's not what any Democrats are doing. They're instead like leaning into this more militarized frame. And I think one of the reasons that mainstream media coverage is also adopting that frame is because as, you know, Stuart Hall, who's a a, a famous kind of British cultural studies figure, um, he and his colleagues theorized uh, journalism as uh, what's called secondary definers, right? So mainstream professional journalism ideology, the idea is you don't, define the terms, right? You don't uh, impose some kind of ideology on the story. You just interview other people, right? And, And then balance out their perspectives in some way. So if you've got a mainstream reporter who's going to go and interview a Republican and a Democrat about border issues, if both the Republican and the Democrat are saying there's a crisis, right? Uh, these migrants are, you know, uh, are possibly militant and pro- you know going to cause problems and we don't know what to do with them and we don't have any resources. Right. If both parties are echoing that same talking point then mainstream press is going to cover that right they're, they're not going to have any sources that can counteract it and so um i think that part of the reason that you've got the mainstream media kind of wholesale adopting right wing media's framing on this is partly a failure of the democratic party because if you do have the democratic party coming out and saying look we're going to make this an issue we're going to have a compassionate border policy we're going to you know treat people like people we're going to provide the resources that he- that folks need uh we we have the you know like more of like uh if the democratic party approached the migration issue from a place of abundance and not scarcity right um which we can do as the richest nation in the world that's sending millions of dollars to Israel to bomb Gaza, right? Um, That would change the narrative, right? So I think that a lot of times people ask me like, how can we change the media? Um, If you wanna change the media and you vote in the democratic primaries or whatever, like change your party, right? Change the democratic party.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree and so you were talking about H.L. Uh, Hunt, uh, Texas oil tycoon. Or you know what? Actually, I have, as a I think for a final question, I wanted to ask you about Texas. So you you grew up in Texas. Yeah. What do you think about Governor Abnett, Abbott and Operation Lone Star, and sort of how he's really made Texas into this backdrop for MAGA content creation and messaging? You know, we have all the elected officials who go down there and pose and, um, you know, we're under invasion. And and it's like a Hollywood, uh, you know, invasion rhetoric factory now.
0: Right. I mean, I'm, you know, crestfallen um, by what's happening in Texas. I'm not terribly surprised. It's, you know... Uh, I used to cover Texas politics for the Daily Texan, the student newspaper at the University of Texas, um, and then briefly for the Austin American Statesman and the Texas Observer. And, you know, Texas politics used to be pretty funny. Um, I mean, it was still horrible. It's always had like a really rough, mean edge to it, Um, but it was always a little bit zany. Um, You know, my, uh, my state senator growing up, Jane Nelson, uh, uh, once I think threatened to catheterize herself uh, so she could filibuster a gambling bill, right? There's like just weird zany stuff, right? That that happens in Texas politics. Um, and so it's weird because looking back, I kind of have fond nostalgic memories in some senses of kind of the kooky elements. Um, and it feels like the, and maybe this is me just being out of state and not being able to be be there as much, um, it just feels meaner. It feels a lot meaner. And and I remember covering Abbott when he was an attorney general in Texas for as so many years because uh, Perry wouldn't get out of the governorship, right? Um, and he was always extremely media savvy. It doesn't surprise me that he's been able to kind of lean in and 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 capture media attention. That he's he's engaging in these kind of stunts uh, with you know people's lives effectively in terms of shipping shipping folks around. Um, so none of that really surprises me. It just is is upsetting and sad to me. Um, Another thing that I find very paradoxical is, um, you know, I grew up in in Flower Mound, Texas, which is north of Dallas. And when I grew up there, it was a very, very white uh, community. that's changed somewhat. Um, it, the the that region, North Texas, is becoming increasingly diverse um, and increasingly integrated. Right? Not, you know, when I was growing up, it was like there was a side of town where like most of the Mexican American lives uh, lived, uh, most of the African Americans lived, uh, and then there was like the white part of town, basically. Right. Um, nowadays, you know, my sister lives uh, in North Texas, not in Flower Mountain, but in a community nearby, and. um, it's a much more integrated suburb than it used to be racially and ethnically. Um, and you see a lot more different types of people around, different kinds of restaurants and shops, right? Uh, I think it's wonderful. Like when I go when I go home to visit family, um, Texas is much more diverse. It's much richer now culturally than it was 20 years ago um, when I was growing up there, 30 years ago when I was growing up there. And so um, I find it striking and strange that at this moment in time when Texas is perhaps the most diverse it's ever been, um, that you nevertheless have it being the kind of basis for, you know, resurgent uh, uh, white supremacist uh, uh, messaging. Um, Now, again, the scholar in me is not surprised by that because, of course, like uh, white supremacist rhetoric and racism, right, peak when uh, white people feel vulnerable, right, when they, they feel under threat. Um, And so an increase in diversity in Texas is probably causing a lot of threatened feelings to a lot of white folks that live there. Right. And and that's, you know, basically uh, Abbott's base. Um, So, again, I'm very deeply saddened by um, by the politics in Texas these days, um, but I'm not terribly surprised by it.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the beginning you said I'm just a historian. I can't really predict the future, but you kind of can, you know, because it is so cyclical. These yeah. these types of movements and you know the white supremacy cropping up. I mean, it's never it's always there, right? Uh, yeah. And and then it just becomes emboldened at certain times in our history, as it is now. Um, I just want to thank you so much, AJ, for for joining us today and and you know for for talking with me. I I really learned a lot and uh and it was cathartic to talk about all this.
0: <laughs> wow, I that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me about an interview that felt like hey, catharsis. Um,
1: you've got to find your catharsis wherever you can. <laughs> I, I
0: somebody should put that on a T shirt. Um, but no, th- thank you so much for having me. I'm a I'm a big fan, and um, you know, I'm just really happy I was able to participate. So um, thanks.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border
1: journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.